When I was younger, I had the great fortune of having a subscription to a magazine, thanks to my mom, uh, Lorma. And that magazine was called Nintendo Power. Now, they did a little bit of a feature on Secret of Mana, and it looked really, really awesome. Now, for me, this was in the post-RPG era. Or, I, I'm sorry, I'm saying that wrong. This was in the RPG era, as in, I had been introduced to RPGs and had discovered that I really liked RPGs as a game and as a concept. <clears throat> Excuse me. As I've said before, all of that was kickstarted by a game called Final Fantasy IV, or, as I knew it at the game, FF2. So I was really pumped about this game. But, of course, money wasn't exactly that common. I mean, we weren't exactly poor or destitute, but going out and buying a game had to be really covered first, paid for, if you will. Now, there was also another niggle here. Some of you may not remember this, but games used to be expensive. We didn't used to have this uh, $60 standard. A new game could cost whatever. Uh, I actually distinctly recall one specific instance, this was actually a NES, uh, couple of NES games, where one of the NES games cost $50, and the other cost 15 Both were new. Both were brand new, and that's just what they cost. There was no real standardization at the time. So, <clears throat> buying games wasn't always on the table. But what was on the table was renting them. I actually remember the day that Mum decided to rent Secret of Mana for me. And uh, it was kind of awesome. I was super excited about it. And she was like, geez, you're getting really excited about this. And I started explaining why I was so excited about it. Because Secret of Mana did a lot of things right. But the thing that really clicked with me, before I even played it, was the co-op. Now, most of my life I have loved co-op, but if I was to look back, that probably really got started with this game. I had played co-op games before. Um, when I was much younger, me and my dad used to play Super Mario Brothers, the original, together. We'd hand off the controller, you know, and then when he dies, he's handed to me. When I die, I'd hand it to him. And there was plenty of dying, so there wasn't really a problem there. Uh, we did the same thing with Adventure of Lolo. Uh, when Mario Brothers 3 came out, I used to play with my friends and we'd hand off each stage, you know. So I've always had that enjoyment of co-op, but it was usually something I kind of forced onto the game, rather than something built into the game. Now, there were a couple of exceptions prior to now, but Secret of Mana, that's what really got that started. And to this very day, I absolutely adore a proper co-op game. About, oh gosh, um... Geez, about 11 years ago now, give or take, uh, me and my best friend Gary kind of started a tradition. And we didn't really mean to. We just both loved Secret of Mana. So we played it. And then about a year later, roughly, we were like, hey, you want to play Psalm? And he was like, yeah, totally. And then we'd do it again. And every year since then, we have played Secret of Mana. Now, I say together... Uh, this year is the first year that we have not actually played fully together. Uh, we do intend to actually do a meetup because we're hoping to uh, interact with each other. We're, we're both planning to go to SGDQ 2017, and we actually have plans to play Secret of Mana while we're there because it's a great game, and it's fun to replay, and it's got great co-op. It doesn't have the best co-op in the world, but it's still good. 
This is also an interesting game because this is the first Kingdom Hearts game. Or, well, let me rewind a little bit. So, in my opinion, the idea of an action RPG could be traced back to a lot of different games. It's one of those things where defining the first of a particular genre is kind of difficult and gets, gets into a little bit of a gray area, you know? Like, is Wolfenstein 3D the first FPS? Uh, not really. It, I mean, there's some that could be debated to be before that. Uh, is Dune the first, you know, three uh, RTS? Well, I mean, there's some that could be debated to be before that, and so forth and so on. And, of course, <clears throat> Final Fantasy Adventure, a.k.a. Sword of Mana, a.k.a. the second Setsu game, came before this game, and was worked on by the same people, actually, back in the Game Boy. So it's not like Secret of Mana began the ARPG thing. But I have a term, and I pretty sure I borrowed this from TV Tropes, that I call Codifier. You know, Doom for FPSs, uh, Command and Conquer in Warcraft 1 for RTSs, and so forth and so on. In other words, a game that wasn't the first of a genre, but really made the genre explode, really made it popular, really got it out there to the point where it began to be developed as an art form. And in my opinion, the game that really began the ARPG era is Secret of Mana. The idea of this basically being a Zelda game with stats and magic was just kind of awesome at the time. It's worth noting that I used to replay LTTP, like, monthly at this particular point in my life. Because I just loved it. I loved replaying that game. It's weird thinking back when you were a kid and you had time to replay a SNES game every month just for fun. Isn't that weird to think about having that kind of free time? Anyways, <clears throat> but you know, I, I loved it. So, so Secret of Mana just, yes! And then I fired it up, and it, it surpassed my expectations. I have been in love with this game ever since. And it's funny because it's an incredibly flawed, incredibly buggy game with an almost nonsensical story. I weep for what this game could and indeed should have been. This might have actually surpassed, this might actually have gotten up into my top 5 or top 10 category, if not for the tremendous flaws that exist within it. Because, well, let's go into it, shall we? I imagine most of you know this story already, but this is originally being developed for the Nintendo CD, or whatever the hell they were actually calling it, which was supposed to be an add-on for the SNES. Uh, this is well before the N64 era. And then they just kind of pulled the plug on that, for reasons I won't get into. Now, the problem was Secret of Mana was mostly done. Like, mostly, I shouldn't say done as in programmed. I mean done as in the design documents, the script, the art had already been done. They'd already start working on pixel art, you know, and, and sketching out, uh, mapping out the, the terrain, the, the areas. A huge amount of the main bulk of the work of creating a video game on Secret of Mana had been done. And then they pulled the plug. And Secret of Mana, as it was, would not work on the SNES. It was impossible. So what do they do? People were livid. I've actually seen interviews. Uh, there's an interview that came out very recently in Sweden, of all places, uh, which I highly recommend you look into if you ever have time, about the creation and development of Secret of Mana and this period of time where they were just like, Arch. <clears throat> now, thankfully, thank God, they actually had the support from Squaresoft, which at the time was pretty much in its prime, so one title taking a hit wasn't a huge deal. So they basically just gave them carte blanche to keep going, well beyond when budget and time should have forced them to pull back on the team. And so they were like, yeah, go ahead, keep working on it. 
So they basically made Secret of Mana again on the actual, on, on the limited SNES cartridge. There have been estimates of how much of the original game was gutted from this one. It's an absolutely huge amount. We're talking a third to two-thirds of the game was removed, including dungeons, story, bosses, characters, plots, everything. Magic, equipment. It is nothing short of astonishing that anything coherent remains in this game, given how what it was supposed to be and what it became. Uh, Ted Woolsey has actually given multiple interviews. He, this was actually a game he worked on, and about how he was just like, "Oh my God, this was one of the most stressful, terrible projects he ever had to work on." And while this dialogue in this game is not good, let's just be honest, I place none of that blame on Ted himself. He has spoken at length about the severe, extreme limitations that were placed on him, including the amount of time that was allowed to him, by the way. He had to do this on crunch. And that was in addition to the fact that, for whatever reason, the English font they had chosen was of a specific type that was, to put it as simply as possible, larger than it should have been. I mean, you could tell that just by playing the game. The font is huge, relatively speaking, especially when compared to something like FF4, for, for comparison. So he had to not only shrink and chop out gargantuan chunks of plot, but he also had to somehow make this huge thing fit in, like, five words. So if you ever wonder why some of the story and some of the dialogue is just, huh? It's because of these extreme limitations that were placed on it. Now, as I am recording this, the Secret of Mana remake that's coming out on the PC, PS4, Vita, Switch someday would be awesome, but not confirmed at the moment, um, may or may not include some of this uh, lost stuff. There's been no word on that. In fact, they've been pretty tight-lipped about the remake overall. I don't even know if it's going to be a proper remake. It might just be a port. It might just be, you know, here's some new graphics, and that's it. So far, I've done a side-by-side -side analysis of what we have seen of the remake, and the dialogue is different, noticeably and demonstrably different. I've actually done a side-by-side -side comparison of the text. I don't know if that gives me hope or not, but it does mean at the very least they didn't just copy-paste like they did with the phone port that came out a few years ago. God, I hope it has all the, the lost content. That would make me so happy. And that brings me to my next point. I have gone digging in preparation for this rumination on what kind of behind-the-scenes information I could find with regards to what was lost, and I have found almost nothing. I, there's, like, no real details on what was lost, with, with one exception, with one big exception. Um, <clears throat> and while there is game data that is unused, while there's some design documents that they reference... None of it's actually out there, and there's no Secret of Mana Ultimania for me to refer to to figure out what was lost. The one and only exception is the Mavolia thing, and I'll be referring to that when we get to more story concepts. It's worth noting that I know this game pretty well. In fact, you'll notice I haven't been looking down like I normally do during ruminations. That's because I uh, don't have any notes for this game. It's kind of an experiment for me. I'm trying to uh, do a rumination with no notes, which I haven't done since uh, Half-Life... Two, I think, is the last game I did. Several, several years ago, like four years ago at this point. Maybe five years ago. It's been a long time. We'll see how well I do. Whew. Let's also talk about the gameplay. I always love talking about the gameplay in my second section of the game. So, I already kind of referenced the action RPG thing. One of the flaws of this game, I mentioned it's kind of buggy. Um, and it's very, very easy to glitch this game out, even just on a normal playthrough. Even if you don't know what you're doing. 
Uh, it's probably also worth noting while I'm saying this that I've actually tasked this game. I never quite finished it. I was doing a very specific, uh, weird kind of story pseudo uh, magic magic limited task that me and my friend Gary had both done work on as far as the design and planning for. So I, I know this game really well. And one of the things I know about this game is that the hitboxes and the hurt boxes are just kind of weird. And getting used to that takes some work. That is something that I should consider a flaw in, in most games, and I do in this one. There are certain attacks which hit an area, like that's the hurt box, you know, this is what you're hurting with your attack, and it's the square, basically you know, on the screen, but the animation is like, or whatever, it doesn't really indicate that. If you play the game enough, you kind of get used to what attacks do what where, but for the most part, it's just kind of, eh. It probably also doesn't help that the scaling done on the power attacks is not linear, and it's not, uh, it's not even same between each particular weapon. So for some weapons, it's absolutely worth going ahead and charging up to six or seven or whatever. Spear and sword both come to mind immediately. And on some, it's absolutely not worth doing so, like the boomerang or the uh, uh, the throwing thing, the javelin. Thank you, God, the javelin. <clears throat> so it kind of depends based on the specific weapon. I will give them credit for giving us a fairly large amount of variety when it comes to melee combat. Each weapon does have its own different functions. Each weapon's power attacks do have their own purposes as well, and it makes for some nice visual variety. Now, the catch is melee power in this game is always, always going to be weaker than magic power, with the one and only exception of the Mono Beast fight itself, where it's mandatory. <laughs> the, uh, the only, although it's actually worth noting, you don't actually need to Mono Sword in the final fight. There's actually a way to, to glitch your way past that, fun fact. But it's kind of a disappointment to me, since an ARPG to me should mean something like that. You know, it would be like playing, for example, Kingdom Hearts and never swinging your Keyblade and just doing a pure magic playthrough. Because that's how a lot of people play Secret of Mana, is pure magic playthroughs. Now, I see what they were going for in terms of balance design, because to continue my point, magic is very powerful in this game, especially if you know what you're doing. If you know, uh, so, each spell isn't just of an elemental type, like sometimes it'll say Fierce Salamando, but what it actually means is Fierce Fireball, specifically. Each, each spell specifically has its own little damage flag. So, while all of the Salamando spells will do like 1.5 damage, for example, to an enemy, uh, Fireball in specific, or Exploder in specific, will do 1.75 or 1.8 damage to a specific enemy. In other words, uh, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes enemies and bosses will have weakness to a specific spell, not just a specific character. And of course, there's mana efficiency to be taken into account, which brings me to my overall point of balancing. The magic is super strong in this game, but it's also expensive and, frankly, kind of hard to recover. In a dungeon, your only real options for recovering mana are... Oh, by the way, I, I pronounce it mana. I know they officially pronounce it mana. I don't care. Moving on. Um, so, I... Uh, I... While you're going through a dungeon, if you have a fairy walnut, you can regenerate your mana. And if you have already unlocked Luna with... Uh, with Oh god, I forget the official name. With the sprite. I'm just going to go with the boy-girl sprite, okay? I forget their official names. <laughs> with sprite, then you can regen your mana. And that's kind of it. So, careful and efficient use of your mana pool is actually a very fundamental part of this game. But, 
at, all that tends to mean is that you can just melee your way through the dungeon, and then when you reach the boss, you just explode the crap out of them with magic, and even if you don't really know what you're doing, even if you don't do the timing trick, which I'll talk about in a second, even if you don't know exactly what they're weak to, or exactly what to use where, or whatever, that's still easy to do, even on a quote-unquote casual playthrough, even if you've never played this game before. I know this, because I've actually... Excuse me, I've actually sat down and played this game with people who've never played this game before, twice in my life. Uh, I've sat down and there's been someone who's just, who they have never even touched it before, and they picked up on this stuff very quickly. And it, it wasn't because Gary and I were giving stuff away, we were, we were tight-lipped. Now, I also want to talk about the timing thing. I'm sure most of you know about this trick. By all accounts, this was actually done deliberately. Now, there's a few interesting things when you get into the code about this, but... So, let's say I cast a, a spell with Salamander. Now, it is by far fastest to cast when you are not the person casting. Now, I feel like this is an unintended glitch. Because if you're the one that casting, what happens is you go, you, you menu, cast, target, boom. Then you go, you pop the hand out, the elemental shows up, and then the spell starts to go off, and then you have this little, like, crouching animation... And then as soon as you stand up, you can start doing stuff again, like a recovery period, which kind of does help to balance magic out. But if you're controlling someone else, the moment the elemental disappears, well before the, the crouch and then stand back up animation, you can cast the spell again, and again, and again, and completely destroy whatever you're looking at. It is very easy to hit the triple nine damage cap. I think I'm not going to talk about that. All I'm going to say is that there's not actually a triple nine damage cap. It is possible to basically kill a monster, even if they have more than 999 health, if you never let that damage resolve. So, it's also one of the reasons why level 9 spells aren't actually super useful. Then you have the fact that you can level up your weapons, and you can level up your spells. Now, leveling up the spells is actually useful. It will, in fact... Uh, increase the amount of damage they do, or the amount of healing they do, or whatever. Um, <clears throat> a little anecdote that most people aren't even aware of: if you're in an area where the enemy, where your party members have their weapons out, you you gain spell power or whatever at a normal rate. If the weapons are put away, you gain it at half the current rate. There's one place; it's actually the Wind Palace in the in the Great Forest, where you can, where you have your weapons out. It's like the only exception to this in the game that I'm aware of, where you can just sit there and cast, you know, heals and buffs on the girl, and then immediately talk to the old man and heal, and then start casting over and over again in order to level your magic very quickly. So a little tip there for anybody who's curious about that. But leveling up magic does have a definitive point. The only exception to that is when you hit level 9. Level 9.9... .9, okay, so once you hit level 9 magic, you start having a chance of doing uber magic, which is basically worse in every way than typical level 8 or level 9 magic, because everything freezes while the spell effect goes on, which means you can't stack it, which is the first problem. And second of all, it's not that much stronger than your basic level 9 magic. The higher the spell level goes, you know, basically 9.07 has like... I forget the exact number, forgive me, but a certain chance for that to happen. At 9.99, you have like a 1 in 3 chance for the uber spell to happen. Which, again, is kind of a bad thing. But it's kind of hard to avoid because spells level as you use them. You know, it's kind of the oblivion sort of a thing. And you will unlock all the mana seeds throughout the course of the game. There's another thing I like, by the way, if I can do a segue here really quick. I mentioned over in Illusion of Gaia 
which I don't remember when that's coming out re regarding this one. This is actually the last rumination I've done for this particular month. Um, but anyways, in Illusion of Gaia, you don't really level in the strictest sense of the word, but as you go through the game and you talk to the Gaia statues, you gain additional powers and additional abilities. So in other words, it is story-based progression rather than, say, grind-based progression. Secret of Mana kind of halfways with that. If you just play the game normally and don't ever stop to level, there's a pretty decent chance that you'll have a rough time of it, because this is actually a pretty rough game, thanks to certain bad design choices in the late end of the game. But your spells will be at a relative level necessary to keep you doing the kind of damage you should be, same with your weapons. And more to the point, you can't level your spells to a certain point unless you reach certain points in the story. As you seal each mana seed you, and, and get to a certain point, then your, your spells can level up past what they normally can do. In other words, by the time you reach the end of the game, getting some of your spells that you use regularly to 9.99 is probably just gonna happen, and there's nothing you can do about that. But that brings me to weapon levels up. Now, I have done some digging into the code of this game. Near as I can tell, that doesn't really add any additional damage to the weapons. Reforging them adds damage and status effects to the weapons, but not actually the leveling the weapons. That's only really relevant for the power attacks, which, again, are only really useful in certain weapons, so shrug. Uh, if you tend to be a completionist, you can go ahead and max out all the weapons, because why not? Some of the attacks are very cool. Uh, the Knuckles is a good example of that. But it's not really necessary unless you're doing a melee-only playthrough, in which case you're probably focusing almost universally on the whip, the axe, the sword, and the spear. And even the whip is only in there because it's so utilitarian for the course of the game. I'm still talking about gameplay. Um, <laughs> I mentioned bugs. I'm not going to go over every bug. In fact, I plan to uh, do another stream of this game just before the remake comes out because then I plan to stream the remake. I will be showing off far more of the bugs when I actually do that stream, and we'll discuss those when we get there, so I do hope you'll join me for that. Or I suppose at this point have joined me for that because this is going to go live like the week before that. So point being, this is obviously before that from my perspective. So I hope you've joined me for that, and I hope you enjoyed that. It's going to be Secret of Mana all week, all the time. Now, <laughs> one of the other things I do love about this game is the presentation value. The graphics were... They're, ver they're relatively cartoony, but not completely cartoony. It's not to the extent of, say, Dragon Quest, for example. It still feels more Final fantasy than it does Dragon quest -y. But it's it's got its own aesthetic, and this is true in Saiken Densetsu 3 as well, which unfortunately still hasn't received a release outside of Japan, which is just ridiculous. It's a great game. If you ever have a chance to play SD3, I highly recommend it. But I love the way they do the menus, for example. The... Something about that is just appealing to me. I think, having thought about this carefully and having replayed the game recently, I think what it really boils down to is... It adds to that feel of it being an ARPG. You know, maybe this is just me, but when I think of a typical RPG, turn-based or an ATB or whatever, you know, pulling up the, the box, you know, you know, like in Earthbound or in Final Fantasy or in Dragon Quest or in the Tales of series or whatever, that feels more standard RPG-y. But the idea of this ring that just pops into existence and I'm like, oh, I just want to pick this thing really quick, 
feels a little bit more ARPG. It, it adds more to the flow of the game, in other words. And the fact that there's so relatively few actual menus or menu usage in this game is kind of added to that. Pretty much the pr predominant amount of menu usage I use in this game is just magic. And of course, it saves your position. And let me just say, if Secret of Mana didn't save your cursor position, this would actually be kind of a crap game. I mean, I, obviously not that crap of a game, but that would be a huge flaw. But it saves your positions, you can just like, bam, and immediately get back to the actual action. So it very much helps the flow of events. And while we're talking about gameplay, I don't often bring this kind of thing up, but I just want to give a special praise to the music. Hiroki Kikuta has done almost no music ever. He's done like, I think, three or four games in the history of his career as a composer. And yet Secret of Mana is some of my favorite music of all time in it. It's just sort of weird how that works out. You know, it's not often I'd like, oh, this composer's great, and they've only done like one or two things, right? Give you a little bit of idea what I'm talking about. Back in the day, uh, I finally, when I was much younger, I found a site that exported uh, soundtracks from Japan, actual CDs and whatnot. There were three I bought with my first bundle, and they were all very expensive because importing from Japan was super expensive back in the day. Uh, that would be Final Fantasy VI's soundtrack, Final Fantasy IV's, and Secret of Mana's. And I've never regretted that purchase. It's, it's, there's some truly amazing music in this game. Moving on. So, let's go ahead and talk about the story, such as it is. Admittedly, this will probably be the shortest section of the rumination, because there's just not a lot to talk about. Now, I will say one thing that's kind of amusing to me is the idea that for most of the game, there's this pseudo-plot twist, which the game itself doesn't really present well, because of the problems I mentioned earlier, about the fact that you're just some guy who managed to find a sword and pull it out. From there all the way till the end of the game, the implication is that you just happen to be the person who was there when the sword needed pulling. It is even implied that members and servants of Thanatos and of the Vandolian Empire were looking into finding the sword, trying to figure out where it was, so they could pull the sucker out. Because the implication was that with how weak mana had become, and with how weak the sword had become, anybody could remove the mana sword. So, But of course we do. And then, plot twist, which we find out way towards the end of the game, we actually are the son of the legendary hero, the last legendary hero, and the mo the woman who became the Monotree, the member of the Mana Tribe. So, uh, I guess we were destined all along. I kind of preferred it without that, if I'm being completely honest, though. Because for the overwhelming majority of the game, the boy is just the hero because he has to be. There's not some big destiny, there's not some big faded eye must be, you know, no, no. Not some great bloodline or whatever. He's a kid. There's a reason his default name in the English version is Boy. Because he's just some kid who found a sword and used it to hack his way out. Also, a nice little bit of gameplay and story integration. You literally cannot leave the tutorial area unless you pick up the sword. It is actually impossible unless you glitch out the game in a major way, which I'm not going to get into. So, <laughs> that's fun. And then you pull it out, and what's the first thing that happens? Everyone in town is pissed at you. I mean, they, there's literally a sequence, and the, the animation doesn't quite get it across. I always have a feeling that some of the animations were supposed to be a lot more in-depth on the original version. But there's a, the implication that, uh, Tim, not Timothy, the other one, I can't remember his name, the, the, the fat guy, is literally p punching or smacking you out of rage and anger because all of these monsters have suddenly started attacking the village. There's a couple story points that story points that are in the background throughout the course of this game that 
are not really fleshed out because of the problems I already mentioned. One of them is the idea that monsters being out and about was actually pretty rare. That monsters were basically contained within their own specific areas until mana started going bad. That each specific area around which a mana seed or a mana seal was, was relatively protected, but thanks to the recent events and the pulling of the sword, they are now to the point where monsters will actually roam in village. Which, prior to now, was the kind of thing that was insane. That would never happen. Like, they know what monsters are because they exist in between zones of travel, if you will, you know, a travel hazard. But not the kind of thing where you have to actually have a town defense. But now they do. Because you pulled the sword. You bastard. And I love the, that that's the way the story starts. You pull, you know, you, you pull Excalibur, literally Excalibur, depending on how you think of that, out of the sword, and it's like, ha-ha! Oh, crap, I just made everything worse. And now the funny part is... They decide, based on what is effectively rumor, which isn't really substantiated, I feel like pointing out, that because monsters are drawn specifically to the sword, well, they need to get rid of the sword. At no point does anyone mention the idea of just tossing the sword out. No, they need to banish you. And I kind of like that because that kind of helps with the, the undercurrent theme we've got going under here that a lot of the people in a lot of the towns, Potos included, are just kind of uh, complacent in a very dangerous way. You know, to the point where the idea of taking ownership of the situation uh, or being willing to stand up for themselves or take responsibility or having the trash truck going by right as I'm talking, you know, all of that is stuff that just doesn't even occur to them. They just want to blame figure. They want a convenient target to say, it's your fault, and kick them out. And that's what they do. Now, we don't actually learn a whole lot about what happens with Potos after we leave. In fact, we learn nothing about what happens to it after we leave. But I always liked the little idea that Potos is just doing worse and worse, because no one's left behind to defend it. Gemma leaves, obviously, he's got other stuff to do, and we see him throughout the game. And we leave, the guy with the sword, who's been fighting monsters, who even defeats the Manasant, so... <laughs> Way to go, guys. But this is a recurring theme throughout the whole game. A lot of places have this overall, it's not my problem, kind of an attitude. Uh, special mention goes to the Gold Isle, uh, where Lumina is, and to uh, most of the citizens of the, you know, South Town and North Town of the Vandolian Empire. Oh, that's another thing, by the way, really quick. Um, so apparently, in more recent years, this has become debatable. Which is weird, because it used to be very concrete. I'm not sure when that changed. But back in the day, it was very simple. Uh, Saiken Densetsu 3 happened first, timeline-wise. Then Secret of Mana, and then Saiken Densetsu 1, or Final Fantasy Adventure. That was, that was the timeline. For some reason, that has been thrown into strangeness, uh, mostly thanks to Dawn of Mana. So I'm just going to keep sort of assuming that that's the truth, because that does make perfect sense. SD3 establishes a lot of things, including the nature of the monetary and how that functions and beginning the cycle. Uh, Psalm is kind of the, 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 the fallout, basically the post-post-apocalypse that happens after the previous disaster. And then FFA is the final attempt of the Vandolians and the Mavolians in general to actually do stuff in order to try and do this. And they fail, the end. So... Whatever. Getting back to my point. Now, one of the things that Secret of Mana did that was pretty awesome to me as a kid, and I still think it's pretty cool now, is it has very, very slight branching story. Now, almost all of that is concentrated at the beginning. 
I have a theory, which of course I have no proof for, that originally there were going to be other parts of the game that were intended to be branching. Most of you who've played the game know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you can go, and if you go in this specific path, you'll be uh, kidnapped by the goblins, and then the girl will come save you. And then if you take her to, uh, if you take her to the castle, you know, she'll be like, ah, screw this, I'm out. Or if you take her straight to the area, you can keep her. But if you manage to take her to the area, then go down to the to the, uh, to the Dwarven area, you can actually keep her and get Sprite and get the, all three party members earlier than you normally could. You know, there, there's several different methods. There's like four or five different paths you can go through the initial chunk of the game. Basically, up to uh, Illini's castle in the forest. That's the part where everything just kind of merges. I also mentioned, I guess I said I have no evidence, but that's not quite true. I mentioned this because later in the game there are several sections which nothing in the game really indicates that you can do things out of order. But you can. I'm mostly referring to when you are dealing with both the fire seed and the ice seed. Uh, or I shouldn't say the ice seed, but the ice area. You can do. You can actually go out of order when it comes to those events. And similarly, there's a lot of things you can do with regards to once you get flamey in order to be able to do some of those orders out of it. So I, I get the feeling that that's just kind of a leftover of what was originally supposed to be a more branching story. Moving on. Oh, also, I guess my final point of evidence is SD3, which literally has a tri-branching story, but I digress. <clears throat> so, uh, one of the things that I, I want to add story-wise. I mean, I've, I've kind of been discussing... I have so much to say about this game. I apologize. I really wish that so many more little details had been more fleshed out. For example, uh, one of the first things that we encounter as we're heading to the Water Palace is Dyluk, who is with his troops who have been sent to infiltrate the forest, uh, to, to infiltrate Illini's lair. Okay, that makes sense. Why was he sent there? There's like, I think, literally two lines of dialogue left in the English translation of the game that actually indicate what was going on there. So, girl's father, uh, she's a member of the nobility. Her father is a member of the aristocracy of the kingdom, okay? And Dyluk is a common soldier. And she is in love with him, and the two are going to get married. Um, her father didn't approve of that. And then all of a sudden, Dialuk just gets this near-suicidal mission out of nowhere, which, appropriately enough, basically sets off the events of the plot. I mean, yeah, us pulling out the sword is what really sets off the plot, but if you think about it, many, many of the events that happen, especially around Thanatos' arcs, all started because her father sent him on this dangerous mission. Yay. So... Then we find out about the Monoseed, you know, we meet Luca, all this fun stuff happens. Um, one of the things that I didn't know for a really long time, I used to make it a point whenever I replayed this game, was to make sure I, I grind enough gold before I enter the Dwarven area so that I can make sure to donate to the Sprite. Did you know you don't actually have to do that? Like, you have to have enough to pay for the show. But if she asks for the donation, if you literally don't have, or excuse me, he, I'm sorry, I've always thought of the Sprite as a she, I only... Like like five years ago, I found out she was a he. When he asks for a donation, uh, if you literally don't have enough gold to pay for it, you don't. So, they just, ah, you cheapskate, and then events proceed as normal. I also want to just say really quick that I wish Watts had been developed more. I don't have anything to say about him other than the fact that he's cool. And he somehow manages to get around, and he has great quotes for most of the areas. Oh, this heat. Anyways. So, now we get to the point where I'm just going to start 
racing forward in the story because I don't have too much to talk about for certain sections. Um, one of the things that they mention is how Thanatos, who is, is aging and dying, is actually a malevolent spirit, the Dark Lich, who needs to have a body to properly manifest in order to properly interact with the world. Now, I mentioned towards the beginning of this rumination the idea that there are certain, you know, there's one plot aspect of the original story which I do actually have knowledge of, and that is the Mavolians. So, I'm not even 100% sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, the Mavolians are basically the demons of the setting. They exist in the underworld. There's a huge variety of what they are and how they are. Uh, and they all, and there's most, if not all, of the villains in the Mana series have all been either Mavolians or directly influenced by the Mavolians. And so, you know, the, the, the curse of Mavoli and all that is an uh, omnipresent aspect of the entire series. Now, you'd be, you'd be forgiven for saying, huh? Because it's not even mentioned by name at all in the first three games, at least the original translations of the first three games. So, I'm very curious if the remake will mention that at all. Regardless, uh, Thanatos himself, as this spirit of Mavolia, is arguably the main villain of the game. He's effectively the last boss of the game. But what I find most interesting is that in the original translation, and again, this is something that I do know about the original story, Emperor Vandal was actually in on this too. Now, they're not, uh, details are vague, unfortunately, due to the nature of missed information, but the idea is that Vandal either made a deal with or actually was one of the original Mevolian spirits. And therefore, despite the fact that Thanatos comes across as this, I'm manipulating you from, from behind the scenes, it turns out Vandal was just in on this the whole time. That plot thread, you can kind of see one tiny little hint of way towards the end of the game when you encounter Vandal in the, uh, in the mana temple, uh, the, the temple of, of mana, of life, or whatever element you want to call that, and Vandal's there, and it's like, huh, it's Vandal! What? He's not moving! Look, there's a door! And that's like all you get! That's the only hint of that plot that remains in the, in the actual English-translated game. God, I, I would give so much! Anyways, anyways. But I bring this up now because one of the important points for Thanatos is he needs that host body. Now, in the original uh, story documents, they kind of mention how Thanatos, if, if there's so much power resonating through him, it's one of the reasons he can't properly manifest here. He can only do so for brief periods of time. In fact, when he does show up as the Dark Lich at the end of the game, it is basically implied that he's only going to be there for a few minutes, and then he's going to get sucked back down to the underworld because he can only manifest for so long. Now, he needs a very specific host body, because if he doesn't, well, all of that power isn't going to go very well in that body, and there's going to be a little problem. So that's why he has been so desperate. He gets to the point where he mind blanks and just starts stealing people from an entire kingdom en masse, trying to find someone. He's even got another agent, Eleni, who he has basically sending people after him, again, en masse, trying to find us this one, now this one, God, I've only got like a few weeks or months or however long the game takes left. Oh, come on, there's got to be another host somewhere. So I suppose it's worth noting that even if Girl's father had not been a politician, there's a chance that he would have eventually come across Dialuk and the events would have happened anyways. Uh, quick note, really quick. Is it just me, or does Eleni come across... Like, does she get away with this scot-free? You notice that? This is a girl, woman, who has been kidnapping people, brainwashing them, and sending them to Thanatos in exchange for herbs which maintain her youth and her magical powers. That's kind of horrible. 
And then when it when it when she finally stops, when when she is defeated and we defeat Spiky, which oh my god, I hate the Spiky fight so much. When 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 she def, when we defeat Spiky and she reverts to her normal form, she's just oh I'm reformed now, and everyone just kind of lets that go. Of course, she's never actually seen again in the plot, so maybe that's why. Maybe they eventually hunt her down and kill her. I don't know. Point being, Thanatos really needs this thing. Now, Thanatos has two separate castles, for lack of a better term, that he has established. One around Northtown, and one right around the kingdom that I mentioned earlier. I don't have a lot of information to speculate on here, but I wonder if those are places he built now, or if those are old places that were built that he inhabited. I'd be curious to think of what you guys think about that particular point. Because I, I kind of like the idea that they are old places that he inhabited a little bit more it would kind of speak to some of the general arrogance of some of the people that, yeah, there's these whole horrible ruins, but whatever. That's over there. We don't need to deal with that. <laughs> you know? And the idea that some of these ruins are probably left over from the last Mana War, which happens in between SD3 and Psalm. But I digress. So we go, we fight Thanatos, we find out about, you know, the whole thing, the whole problem with him needing his host body and Gemma. And then the story kind of slows down a little bit. Like, this, I feel like, up until pretty much that moment, the plot was fairly cohesive, and the characterization was fairly good, and there's not a lot of holes missing there, right? Like, for the most part, everything that happens there, with, with pretty much the one exception about the thing with Dialek and the girl's father, is all still present in there. The one thing I've noticed in this game is the further you get into it, the more holes there are. Like the it, it and you know what I mean by that. It, it feels like they cut more stuff out of the third act and the second act, in other words, than in the first. Because then we effectively end ourselves going to the well. First, we meet the Scorpion Army, which is awesome, and then we go to the the Great Forest, and then we just kind of meander for a little bit from that point on. We end up at Matango, and then we end up going north to the desert and all this fun stuff. I don't have much to say about most of the sections here, and that's part of why I'm. I'm listing this like this because it's basically like, all right, get to the next set piece, get to the next set piece, get to the next set piece. And there's not a lot connecting them. There's even a moment which just kind of makes me go, oh, really? When Sprite, when we first interact with the uh, the Earth Seed in the underground uh, Earth Temple, and the Sprite, like, oh, oh my god, I remember, we should go to the North Forest. Just, <laughs> huh? <laughs> okay. Or the Great Forest, excuse me, not the... Okay, sure. Why not, I guess. And uh, and then you have to walk the seasons. That was kind of cool. I, I, I love the forest in terms of aesthetics. The winter, spring, summer, uh, fall thing. It's just really, really cool looking. I wish we'd seen more of it. I, I would have loved it if that was more fleshed out and more developed. Anyways, I, I want to bring up something really quick that's partially related. You know the boss, uh, Sharpbeak or something like that, that you fight at the end of the Great Forest section? It's right before you get Sylphid, right before you get to the Air Temple. That boss, Thunderbeak, or whatever the hell it's called, has the weirdest hitbox in the world. I would only I only know this because I've done a melee-only challenge of this game. His hitbox is basically right behind his feet. So if you're looking at the sprite, you want to hit pretty much where his legs are in order to hit him properly. Now his hurt box is huge. Almost his entire body, and a huge chunk in front of him where the beak is, is all his hurt box. So, you have to be very, very careful to melee this guy down. It is possible. It is 
probably, I'd say, one of the hardest melee-only fights in the game, right up there with the two vampire fights. Just, holy crap. Anyways, I just wanted to comment on that really quick. So, like I said, we go through a lot of set pieces after this. I'm going to kind of skip forward a little bit, because one of the things I want to talk about is the Republic of Tasnika. Now, we don't really learn a lot about it. We, we, they have the sand ship, and Gemma mentions them a few times. And then we actually go there, and it's the stinky little city, because it's a SNES RPG and everything's a stinky little city. And not much is really made of them. What we do know is that this Republic has been around for a long time. When we see the TV orbs in, in, the, in the old temple of the old days, back during the war... Well, there's, first of all, that's an awesome section of the game. Uh, it kind of showcases the, how life was in that world before, well, I should say before and during the Mono War. But second of all, the, they mentioned that both the Vandalian Empire and the Tesnican Republic were both there. They were both part of the world, even during the Mono War. So what we're seeing, again, getting back to that post-post-apocalyptic feeling, which isn't really present in the game, but is nevertheless true, is present. What we're seeing is the remnants, what's left over of the Republic. And it's also one of the only powers that's actually putting any real military might against pushing back the Vandalian Empire. Problem is, I, there's nothing that really makes me feel that in the game. Like, the Vandalian Empire has troops that go here or there, but there's, it's not like, to use a direct example, it's not like FF6, where Gestalian troops literally occupy Figaro, and, or excuse me, South Figaro, and literally occupy Doma and deny you access to Vector at certain points in the game. You know, there's, there's this sense that they have occupied territory, and you can do things uh, at, the, at the banquet to remove those troops. None of that's in Secret of Mana. The troops just kind of show up wherever they're needed to be bad guys. You know, for example, the Water Temple when, Gesh when we first meet Geshtar, or uh, mostly in the North and South Empire, or in the South Town, for that matter. We don't really see a lot of them. There's an implication somewhere that Gold Town is actually a vassal state of the Vandolian Empire, but it's literally one line in the entire game that mentions it. I'm bringing all this up because there's a lot of setting that's just absent in this game, and I understand why. Again, no, no complaint to Mr. Wolsey. I feel like he realized that he couldn't do a lot of the setting building stuff, and he couldn't do a lot of the character stuff. He was pretty much left with just plot. And that informs the entire, like, the entire second act of the game, which starts pretty much from the moment you, uh, you, you get to the Great Forest, or actually when you start going to the Great Forest, and then ends, I'd say, about the time you get to the, the, the Lost Continent in the Southeast. That whole section of the game is just, go, 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 all right, there's this guy, okay, there's this seed, okay, there's this seed. And it's just, run, you're, you're ping-ponging between locations, not really doing much to establish, you know, why is this area frozen? Why is it Santa Claus felt the need, yeah, by the way, we fight Santa Claus in this game, for those of you who never played this game. Why is it Santa Claus really felt the need to use a seed to build a new Christmas tree, to, to renew, rejuvenate people's faith in, in Christmas? I mean, where does that even come from? Explain yourself, sir. <laughs> um, and, and why is it that the, 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 the presence of Salamando in the deserts of Caraca actually help uh, make things better, make things functional and serviceable? And of course, that doesn't even restore the water when we get there. We actually have to go do a side quest, one of like three side quests in the entire game, in order to go restore the water. So, what's up with that? All of this is just kind of there. Like, what about Matango? I would love to know more about a kingdom of mushroom people who exist just adjacent to the Great Forest and in a generally dangerous area even before the monsters started really attacking. But all we know about them is that the king is just kind of 
he's got this weird attitude of ah, you know, he's, he's like he's like Happy Hut. Um, for those of you who don't remember what that is, and uh, and that that's where a lot of the mana beasts and mana dragons had kind of taken to hanging out or nesting in order to to hide from the rest of the world. I mean, we even see random mana beasts fly across the screen as we're going through that particular zone. But why? Why that area? I, all I can do is speculate in a vacuum. And then there's a part of the game, uh, so, you know, we do all this stuff. We, we unleash all this power. We go to the Gold City. Um, one of the things I tend to do just as an aside, is I tend to not buy equipment until I get to the Gold City. It's an old habit of mine. It's because of the fact that the Gold City equipment is way better than almost any equipment you can buy in the game. The only thing that surpasses it is Neko's uh, gear in, in the pretty much the end of the game. He actually has two endgame shops, one right before you go to the Pure Lands and one when the Mana Fortress is actually available. And he sells the actual best uh, best purchasable gear in the game. The actual best gear in the game all drops, and the Mono Fortress has random drops from trash. Which is not my favorite method of getting the best gear in the game, especially since some of those drops can take a long time. God, I've farmed the Mono Fortress so much. Anyways, getting off topic. Point being, I like to wait until I get to the Gold uh, to Gold City and just kind of dump money there. And, and basically, that's usually the only time I really dump money on gear. But I want to bring this up because... For the longest time, I assumed gear just kind of didn't really matter until I was working on that task I mentioned. Because it turns out your defense stat is actually hugely important in this game. It's It can reach a point... So your defense stat doesn't just determine how much you're hit by. It also determines how, what chance you have of being crit and if you're staggered by the blow at all. What I mean by that is you, if you've played this game, you know, you get hit and go... Ugh. And you recover for a second, right? But sometimes you get hit and you're just like, and it's just really quick. And sometimes you just do a block, and you're immediately back into the action. That's all predicated on the defense stat, which is which in turn informs other stats on your actual stats page. So getting a higher defense stat is actually hugely important to this game, because it's actually really, really easy to be stunlocked if you don't know what you're doing. Now obviously in a task, you can just avoid everything perfectly, but that's kind of how I started finding that out, because there were certain sections where I would get stunlocked to death because I was level 3 and had no gear. So, you know. Anyways, getting off topic. I would love to know more about the Gold City while we're on this subject. One of the characters there has an off-chance line, just a random line, where they mention how the whole island is sinking slowly because of the weight of all the gold. But I have another question. Why does Lumina, or the Light Mana Seed, have the ability to turn things to gold? Like, where's the connection point there? Like, we see... One of the undercurrent themes of this game is environmentalism, to put it as simply as we can. Obviously, as I've mentioned several times, this is a post-post-apocalyptic society. There already has been an apocalypse, the Mana War, that happened. That dev People before that had television, they had game shows, they had missiles, they had what is effectively modern technology. All of that was, was built on Mana. One of the one of the orbs we see from the Mono War is two people arguing on a TV show, on a talk show, and one of them says, "You're you, you know you you're ridiculous. You can't use up mana, right?" So that war happened, and everything just kind of got smashed, 
And then we've been slowly rebuilding ever since. There's a reason that the world of mana as it is now is basically an agrarian society. This is what has come up. We only recently have the beginnings of kingdoms and empires in the wake of what happened. And we still don't have the level of tech we had back then. Later on, we actually find a functional subway from the old world, from the way things were being built under the era you know, prior to the Mono War. But one of the recurrent themes is the misuse of mana. Now, I wish this had been more developed and more fleshed out, because what would be a great narrative contrast is the difference between properly using something and improperly abusing something. But unfortunately, all we see in the game is people improperly abusing it. We see the Scorpion army trying to use uh, the seed in order to power up their robot. Uh, we see the guy, uh, Mammon on the gold aisle, using it to create all the gold. Uh, we see people who are draining the, the power of the, the, the seed in order to uh, try to build a new Christmas tree or to change the environment of an area or, oh hell, for that matter, to, to, to make the little paradise ter terrain in the snow village. That's, that's the Scorpion Empire again. Excuse me, the Scorpion Army. We see every attempt to use the mana seeds that doesn't involve us casting spells and, and empowering up our weapons as bad. And I don't quite like that message. And I'm not sure if that's the intended message or not, because so much of this game's story is absent. But the way it kind of comes across is that we should never advance to a certain point, like an extreme form of environmentalism. We should always not use mana, right? I, I don't quite f bring myself to agree with that concept. I feel like there would be a way to properly use mana without going to the levels of abuse that caused the mana war. Now, of course, the enemy's plan, Vandal, Thanatos, and the Mavolians in general, their plan is to deliberately overuse mana. That's actually the specific reason why they re-resurrect the mana fortress, is so that it will cause such an overwhelming glut of mana usage that it will re-provoke the mana beast, and once that happens, we'll have another cataclysmic clash, and we'll have yet another apocalyptic scenario, wiping the, the slate back down to clean, even more than it already was. There's also the implication that this would open the, the door, for lack of a better term, to the underworld for the Mavolians to come up and just conquer and take the world for themselves. The fact that the mana tree is actually destroyed in this game by the mana fortress is another relevant point significant to that whole environmentalism theme I mentioned. I mean, that's about as direct one-to-one -one of, uh, of an analogy that I could come up with. A mana machine destroys the mana tree. I mean, think about it, right? Now, of course, we know that this isn't the end of mana, but this is... Well, okay, so I say that. Again, the timeline placement is questionable. If FFA, if Second Setsu 1, actually happens after this game, then we know it's not the end of mana. But just within the game itself, it's implied that this is the end of mana, that the entire goal and point here is that we have to stop this from happening. And the only way to do that is to literally segregate mana from the rest of the world. And so, and that's why we'll never see the sprite again. And that's why the, we have to defeat Flamey at the end. And that's why we lose the ability to tap into mana, and that we will then have to use other energy sources and other concepts, like some kind of clean energy, like coal! That would be much better! Sorry, wrong game, that's FF7. Point being, this implication is there throughout the game, that we just need to not use mana at all, and I, I really don't know if I go into that. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. Or rather, I'm just kind of branching in my topics, because again, there's not a lot to talk about the plot for most of the latter half of the game.
We do find a little bit more out about Thanatos, which I've already told you about. We do find a little bit more about the Vandolian Empire. There's also this scene which just kind of makes me roll my eyes. Now, again, I'm going to parallel this game to Illusion of Gaia really quick, because there's a scene where we meet the Resistance Cell in Northtown, and they're like, hey, the Emperor wants to talk peace. And I think uh, even even as kids, I'm pretty sure no one believed that was sincere for even a second. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Let's go talk peace with Ember Vandal. This is totally going to work out. Oh, it's a trap. No, stop. And so what I do have to say, though, is that moment has almost no impact. And that's kind of the thing that bothers me about it. Think about this narratively. You know, we've just defeated uh, the Dreadwaller, or excuse me, the Vampire, in Thanatos' uh, ruins right next to the North Town. We go back. Uh, the Resistance is brought in to talk peace. The Resistance is imprisoned. Then we fight our way out. And then the Resistance is freed. And then we fight our way through the castle, defeat Geshtar. Geshtar tries to blow up the roof of the castle to kill us. And Flamey comes in and swoops off, and then we have access to our airship which is, by the way, one of the cooler airships in the series, if I may say so. So, what was the narrative point of all that? Like, if you, th if, if you think about it, right? Again, I know there's pieces missing, but what is accomplished by this sequence of events? We get our airship, but there's a lot of ways to do that that don't involve this whole convoluted mess. It feels like something that was tossed in that should have been fleshed out, that should have had more depth to it, but instead it's just... Hey, it's a trap. All right, we're free. Airship. You know, that's basically how the sequence of events goes. Now, I wanted to parallel this directly to Illusion of Gaia, because one of the reasons that this imprisonment scenario has no impact is because it literally lasts a few seconds. Like, we walk up, and Emperor Vandal is like, ha ha ha, and ah, oh, no. Fade to black, fade back in, and we're there in the we're, we're there in the cell. We can talk to the other people. And as soon as we start banging at the doors, they let us out to go fight the boss. There's no impact from that for the player, for the person. They might have been in there for days for all we know. But instead it's just fade to black, fade in, and go fight boss. And that's it. Illusion of Gaia did the same concept a lot better. Because this is a very small spoiler for Illusion of Gaia. Towards the very beginning of the game, it's actually one of the first things that happens in the entire game. You're summoned to the king. And the king demands the ring from you that your dad had. And whether you say yes or no, he tosses you in prison. And then you can't do anything. It's not super long, but for a period of about 40 seconds or so, you're just stuck there. Now, there's a couple of bits of dialogue to help smooth things out and for you to be able to have something more to do. But for the most, the point is that for the player's perspective, it gives it a little bit of time to sink in to the point where you actually comprehend what has happened, rather than just it being another bump on the road, like it feels like in Secret of Mana. Anyways, so we get flamey, woo, and we go fly around and we get the rest of the seeds. Not, a, not much to say here. I almost always go for uh, Luna first, because I really want MP train. <laughs> MP drain is the exact moment at which the game stops being difficult, unless you're doing a melee-only challenge. Because at that point, you can just MP drain, and you all you always have to make sure you know what you're MP draining. You know, MP drain, nuke, MP drain, nuke, MP drain, nuke. What I got into the habit of doing was I would start with a nuke, and then while the casting animation is still going, I would do the MP drain, and then the damage would would finish with them hurt with them dying, and I would get the MP back. You know, it's just a fun little thing there. 
I don't have much to say about the rest of the game. As I, as I already talked about, we have this post-post-apocalyptic thing. You know, when we go to the Lost Underground, we see the, the cityscape, the, the underground city and the subway and the, the high-tech and the computers and all this stuff. More signs of, of the world that was. Also, there's the whole Jack Jock section, which... <sighs> I have to admit, it took me until my second time playing through this game to realize that you don't actually have to go up every single time and go through that... Stupid mountain, go all the way to the top, and then talk to him, and then go out and fly out, and then come back and go all the way to the top again every freaking time. You can just do the events that need to be done. You know, go to, go to Tesnika, go to the Shadow Temple, etc., etc. You can just go do those, and then when you finally come back to him, he will go ahead and say, Alright, time for your trial. I also wanted to talk more in depth about the specifics of that trial, but unfortunately, I couldn't find my specific notes on that. I do know that if one of your players dies your doppelganger dies too, and then you can just res your player. And that's actually one of the easiest ways I've ever had to get by the doppelganger fight. There's other more legitimate ways to fight it too, but, you know, if you're level 10 or whatever. So, you have the trials to prove that you're worthy, which doesn't, I mean, again, is a section of the game that I don't have much to say about, other than I feel like more was supposed to be here. I'm trying not to repeat myself too much, and that, but I just want to acknowledge that this is another section that feels like there should have been more here, uh, especially the section where we go to the Republic, and they're like, oh my god, there's a, there's a tre trespasser. There's some kind of person, and we walk up, and it's like, it's you! Oh my god, how did you know it was me? What, huh? And then we fight Sheiks, except we don't even know it's Sheiks. We don't find that out until later. It's just some random trash mob. It's not even a boss. What? And then we're done. Okay, that was weird. All right, I guess we'll go to the next set piece. You know, a lot of the, the third act is just go, go, go. One cool part, if I may skip forward a little bit, is when we go to the Pure Lands. Now, me and Gary uh, have, a, have a concept between us, and there's only really two things that fit this concept, but we refer to it every time it comes up because it amuses us greatly. And that's a section which has really light-hearted, uplifting music or very peaceful, tranquil music in a part of a video game that's insanely hard. And I ever played DuckTales on the NES. The moon music. I know you know the song I'm talking about, but if you remember, especially on the nest, that area is hard. The moon is brutal. And so the whole time it's like, you're gonna die! Da -da 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 -da. You know, the whole time we're going through that. It's the same thing with the Pure Lands. It's this wonderfully peaceful, soft, soothing music in this insanely difficult nightmare land of doom. Like, we, and, and I'd love to hear, really quick, before I go into it, if you've played this game, when I say the Pure Lens, what's like the first thing that comes to your mind? Just real quick. Okay, okay. now that you're done with that. So for me, it's the damn Griffin Hands. Now, what's funny is they don't actually do much. They get buffed and they hit like a truck, but that's it. But if you pay attention, every enemy there is a nightmare. The ghosts and their debuffs, the freaking owls and, and everything they cast. There's so many enemies there that are all nightmarish. And it's a boss, boss rush from hell. It's like, first you fight the dragon, then you fight the other dragon, then you fight the other dragon, then you fight the, the, the serpent, and then you fight the other bird guy, and then you fight the other dragon. Just bam, bam. Oh, there's a Gigas in there, too. I forgot about that. Just bam, 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 bam. Just wham. And then you finally get to the end of the Pure Lands. <sighs> Probably should have been some story here. And then there's this moment where the game, it's, it's actually one of the only times the game does this, where it takes control away from you. It, you, you can't hit A to advance the text as you're looking over the monitor. 
And then Thanatos destroys the monetary. And we go down and we talk to it. And, oh, we were part of the chosen hero line all along. Damn it, Mom. <laughs> That's a fairly appropriately doomed moment. I will give them that. That's a great twist. You know, we have this thing where we have finally found the monetary and we're finally at peace and we understand this is this is going to work out. We're going to, to empower the sword and we're going to be able to defeat the fortress and this is all going to work out and then boom. And we see exactly what the fortress is really capable of and why it was so damaging the last time it was floating around. And I've always gotten the impression, and I know I'm not the only one who thinks this, that Thanatos was just sitting there waiting. He wanted you to see that. He could have done that any time. He wanted you to be aware of that. So then we go to the Mana Fortress. Let me just go ahead and say really quick that the Mana Fortress song is one of my favorite songs of all time. It's on what I call my Zero playlist, which is the best of the best of the best. And uh, it's great because it helps make farming there a lot easier because the Mana Fortress is brutal, especially if you don't know what you're doing. Again, lots of bosses, and again, really, really mean trash fights. But the thing that makes it more interesting is that there's actually... I mentioned earlier that there's gear that drops in the Mana Fortress. There's actually two sets of gear. There's like a lesser set, which drops off the enemies you meet mostly in the early part of the fortress. And then there's the actual best gear in the game, which drops off the enemies you fight at the later part of the fortress. And there's no story through the whole fortress, which I, I, I not, try not to repeat myself. But then we go and we have our final scene. Now, this scene I do know some of the original translation of. Uh, it's the scene where Dyluk is there and Thanatos finally possesses Dyluk. Now... The dialogue doesn't get it across particularly well, but the whole idea is that Thanatos has inhabited his new host body, and he is now in dialogue, and Thanatos has basically won. He has the fortress, he has destroyed the tree, and he has his new host body. He's going to be able to force the mana beast, Flamey, to attack the, the fortress, and he's going to be able to cause another apocalypse, drop another A-bomb on the whole world, wipe things clear, and unleash the things from Avolia. And this is the moment that I really wish we had more characterization for, because this is when Dialog shows what kind of a person he really is. He manages to resist the will of Thanatos for just a few seconds, and that's all he needs, because then he commits suicide. Dialog kills himself, and in so doing, prevents Thanatos from having a proper host body. This forces Thanatos out, and as I mentioned earlier, he can only really manifest for a brief period of time. Now, most of the other set pieces are in place for him to win, but without him there to guide them, now it is possible for the heroes to interrupt Thanatos's plans. And that's kind of awesome. It's a story element I don't see that often, and I would love to see more of, where someone else, a, a, a fairly normal, typical, ordinary individual, stands up and mans up and kills themselves, in this case, literally and directly. But you know what I mean. They, they do something that enables the heroes to win. I mean, there are other games that have done this, of course, but I love that concept. And then we fight the Dark Lich one of my favorite boss songs of all time, and just an awesome fight overall. Also, really, really, really hard fight if you're out of fairy walnuts. Make sure you save some fairy walnuts for that, because you're going to need them. 
So, great fight, and then we defeat it, then some really awesome music plays as we realize that now that we have pushed him out of the scenario, now we have no choice. With the Mana Tree gone, the Mana Fortress will crash, but we still need to get rid of the Mana Beast to prevent that apocalypse from happening. And once we have done so, again, the implication is that Mana will fade from the world, which is, according to the ending at least, what actually happens, although again... Final Fantasy Avenger kind of throws that into context. And then we have the the fight with the Mana Beast, which again, awesome boss song. And a very unique boss fight. It's one of the very few times where Secret of Mana went ahead and just really pushed the boundaries of what the SNES could do. Um, the specifics of what are happening are actually kind of basic if you're aware of what's happening. Like, for example, when he, when he tosses the flame spiral at you, what happens is at the last second, it basically manifests a hurt box right on the spot, which you can block or dodge or avoid or whatever. And then the hurt box goes away, and then it then it de-renders the graphics. Or when he flies at you, similar kind of a concept. And then when he flies up, up, that's your chance to actually hurt him. Sure hope you have the mana to empower the sword, because if you don't, you have to use the glitch to hurt the mana beast. Quick little anecdote. Me and my friend Gary like to beat the mana beast with barrels every time, because... Barrels are an item that make you invulnerable and incapable of doing anything. They're completely useless, except in the final boss of the entire game, where there's huge sections of time where you can't do anything and he's trying to attack you. Hmm. Anyways. So we beat the Mana Beast. He goes, Mode 7's his way out. That's also why there's no background. The Mana Beast is the, the background layer. That's how Mode 7 works. And then Peace Reigns? I really wish I knew the specifics of what happens here, because we do, of course, know that we have lost the sprite, and Dialuk is dead, and we've lost Mana. By all intents, the ending's actually a downer. All we've done is prevent things from getting even worse. Things are still bad. And despite the uplifting music of the ending, I always feel like we've actually kind of failed here, that all we managed to do is prevent things from from going from bad to worse. Again, like to repeat myself. I really, really am looking forward to playing the remake and seeing what they do with this. I've run out of things to talk about. I hope you've enjoyed this, my experiment in doing my first rumination about four years without notes. I hope it's been acceptable. I'll see you guys next time.